So Luke chapter 9. Let's start, shall we, with a, a film or a movie reference, if you'll allow your minister to do that. Uh, in 1995, I looked it up, 1995, uh, the film Apollo 13 uh, was released, and it was released to, to great critical acclaim. Have you seen this film? I'm sure most of you uh, will have heard of the film Apollo 13. The, the, the film told the true story of a, a lunar mission, and it was a lunar mission that went very terribly wrong. So as the, the shuttle headed towards the, the moon, an explosion uh, caused the craft to lose much of its oxygen supply and to immediately have to abort this mission. Big explosion. Now, at one point in this film, you really can cut the tension with a knife. So at this particular moment, you've got the three astronauts and they are crammed into the cockpit and the vessel at this point is, is tumbling out, into, out of control and away out into space. Now, what they need to do, they've heard from the Earth, what they need to do is they need to, to blast their thrusters on full for about 25 seconds in order for them to get back onto course. But there is, can you remember? There's a problem. The explosion means that none of the gauges are working. So they don't know which, okay, we'll stick on the thrusters, but they don't know which direction to aim. You see the problem. So what do they do? Well, very, very quickly, they work out if they can just keep the earth in view out of this particular small window of the aircraft, the far off earth, if they can just keep it in that window frame, they will now have their fixed point of reference they need to get back on a course. Okay, so... The that's what they do. And, and, and it's an amazing scene. I know this because I watched it with my children this week. But it's an amazing scene. So the, the thrusters go on for these 25 cents. There's noise, there's vibrations, there's stuff flying around this cockpit. It's chaos. But there is also Tom Hanks. And he's got his hands on the control. And what is Tom Hanks doing? He is staring intently at the earth, out of that window. And because he does that, he is able to bring the shuttle home. Why begin this morning with such a dated movie reference? Well, as we've noticed before, one of the main themes of this chapter of Scripture that we are in just out, Luke chapter 9, is the theme of discipleship, isn't it? We've seen much about the self-denial, cross-bearing, and the assurance of discipleship. Well, as we continue in that vein this morning, and in, in this oh, wonderful miracle that we're going to, to look at just now, I think we're taught one great truth, is this. That like in that film, the life of discipleship, it must also be focused on the correct things. Now, do you follow like, if you and I are going to survive our journey home, and if we're going to follow Jesus in the way that the Lord Jesus Christ desires, like in that movie, we must have the right points of reference for this journey ahead. The right things as our focus. Now, that 
immediately raises a question for the church, doesn't it? Because we immediately ask, well, what is it that we should be focused on? What should we be fixed on? Well, I tell you what, let's pray. Then we'll open the Bible and we will see. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we tremble as we come to you uh, because we, become, we come before our, our maker and our creator. But this morning in Christ Jesus, we know that we can call you father and we know that you're tender and loving with us. Lord, grant us today our greatest need, our great need to hear from you in your word. Oh Lord, we pray. Amen. Okay, what should we be fixed on? What should be our points of reference for our life of discipleship? Number one, we see here that we should be, we should be focused on Jesus' mercy. We got that, Christian friends? We should be focused out that window on the way home. We should be focused on Jesus' mercy. Now, let me just speak to you just for a, a short moment about uh, Raphael. Raphael, not the Teenage Mutant, uh, whatever it is. But Raphael, the 15th century Italian artist, just for a moment. You see, one of uh, Raphael's most famous works of art, and I'm sure it's known uh, to a number of you, one of his most famous uh, paintings depicts the very scene uh, that we are looking at and beholding this morning in Luke chapter 9. Now, it's, it's a wonderful painting. It's a, it's a painting that is famous largely for its juxtaposition of light. So if you haven't seen it, you can imagine it with me. So you have, it's in two halves almost. In the top half, Raphael depicts the transfiguration. Okay, so you've got the, 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 the mountaintop picture and Moses and Elijah and so forth. And you know, it's, it's bright. It's really bright. As you behold the painting, it's dazzling. So you have that and the top half. And then you can guess what you've got in the bottom half. You've got the activity down at the foot of this mountain. And so what does he depict? He depicts this vast crowd that is busy. There's a lot of people in this vast crowd. But he also depicts the dad the father in this story, and he is holding his, his, his clearly distressed son, his, his child. And you see the lower half of this painting by Raphael, which I know you'll all go and look at when you go home just before your lunch. The lower half is very different to the top half. Like the lower half is very shadowy, and it's, and it's, and it's dingy, and it's very dull, and I think if you've got the, the, the Bible open and as we, we go from that into Luke chapter 9, nowhere do we see that darkness more clearly than in the description of this young boy's plight. Look at it with me. If we could look at verse 39. Do you see it? And think about it. So we're told if... It will, as always, depend on the translation of the Bible you have, but you're, you're probably told of seizures, are you? Or convulsions. These are both, I'll look at some of the detail with me, these are both frequent, so they, they hardly leave him. What else are they? Aren't they violent? It's a horrible word that we've got here, isn't it? The, the, the idea, they're shattering him. Is it 
Is it Mark's gospel? Maybe it's Mark's gospel that tells us that these, these convulsions have thrown him in time into fire or into water. They're frequent, they're violent. I, I don't want any of us in this room or watching online to make a mistake. The mistake would be to think that this is just epilepsy. No, look what the author says. Who's the author? The medical doctor, Luke. What does he tell us? He attributes this in verse 39 to a spirit, but your eagle eye will have noticed in verse 42, he also attributes this or describes this as a demon. So the devil really is, is, is behind this affliction of this young man. I, I told you that Raphael got it right in the sense this is quite dark, isn't it? There's demonic, devilish power at work with this, this poor lad. Now, in a moment, what we'll do, of course, what we'll do is, is discuss or, or look at the disciples and their, their failure. But before we do that and hear, brothers and sisters, long for you, just at this moment, would you consider what you learn in this section of Scripture about your Savior, Jesus? Would you consider what this, what this portion of Scripture shows you that, that he is like? Because first of all, I'll give you two things here, but first of all, do, are we not shown the mercy that Jesus has for parents in this section of Scripture? Don't you think? The mercy he has for parents. Look, look at this in, in verse uh, 38. He does kind of tug at us a little bit, the language, doesn't it? In verse 38, we're told of a man, this dad. Look at the language, which we'll come back to later. Do you notice what he does? He cries out. Does everybody see that in verse 38? He cry, he's crying out. I think we could fail to appreciate something here. I think we could fail to appreciate the noise. You see, we learn in the other accounts not only is there a vast, vast crowd, but at this point in time, the scribes, some scribes have arrived on the scene. And can you remember what we're told elsewhere? They're arguing. So the scribes are arguing with, with this big, vast crowd. Now, we, we can't say for sure exactly what they're arguing about, but what do we know? That would be noisy. Don't you think? All of this and all of this shouting. So, 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 so do you see what the father's doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's trying to be heard above that. And this father's crying out loudly. He's crying out to Jesus. Jesus, please heal my, my only son, my only child, please. And how does Luke, how does Jesus respond? I know there's a, a lot of water that goes under the bridge before there, but at the end of verse 41, just listen to what Jesus says. Looks at the father and says this. He says, bring your son to me. Bring your son here. Friends, isn't that lovely? And doesn't it give such hope to the parents of unbelieving children in, in this room? There are many, aren't there? There, there are many parents in this room, uh, and they, they can be parents of, of grown-up sons and, and, and daughters, and, and, and maybe that's not the case, but maybe they're parents of young children, but there's parents in here 
of kids who have yet to profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and some of our offspring, isn't it the case they seem a million miles away from doing that? Like here, they seem like the evil one even seems to have his claws into them. And this morning, what does God do? We are reminded here that our Savior Jesus is powerful, but he's merciful. And Jesus hears the, he hears and answers the cries of parents. What incentive for us to, to go and run to him, to cry out to Jesus for unbelieving offspring. But I promise you two things under this heading. <laughs> Don't we also? So we see his mercy for parents and for this man, this father in distress. Aren't you with me when I, when I add to that picture? Because do we not also see the mercy that Jesus has for the young? You see that here? The mercy Jesus has for young people. The teachers um, of St. Peter's will, will know this, and some of um, the, the parents will know this very well as, uh, uh, too, that when you accompany a primary school class uh, on a school trip, if you've ever done that or ever seen that, uh, you know that it's very, it's crucially important to be able to count. If you accompany a primary school class on a, a trip, a school trip, it's, yeah, it's important to count. I think we've all seen that sort of picture. There's the teacher, and she's out on a, uh, she's out on a school trip, and she's ushering her class, let's say, into a museum, and she's holding the door. And the class, the primary school class, are filing in. They're all wearing their high-vis jackets because they're out on their school trip. And what's the teacher doing as she holds the door, ushers them in? She's counting the heads. She has three, four, get in there. Three, four, five. Just making sure they're all present and correct. Oh, isn't it such a... a lovely thing to realize that we can do that uh, with Jesus' earthly ministry, that there are given to us numerous examples in the Gospels of Jesus of Nazareth acting in compassion and acting in compassion on, on young people. Isn't that lovely? Now, don't get me wrong, of course, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't have compassion for for, for, for people of other ages, and of course he does, and the older saints in here would, would testify to that and affirm that. But is it not accurate to say that Jesus does seem to have this special place in his heart? And it's reserved to, to show mercy for, for young people. And I wonder, St. Peter's, would you count them in? Listen, John chapter 4 Jesus heals an official's son. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus heals a Canaanite woman's daughter as well. And then if our memories are good, what do we know? Luke chapter 7, Jesus acts in compassion and raises a widow's son. And then Luke chapter 8 as well. And then what does Jesus shows mercy? And he raises Jairus' daughter. Then we come into here, and it's Luke chapter 9, and he does it again. Do you see? And is it not striking? And is it not amazing when you put it all together time and time and time again? We see our Lord's heart of mercy act and act in compassion towards those who are, who are young. 
And so you, you know what I'm going to do. Of course you do. Now this, this compels me to speak to the young people of this church. Who do I mean by that? Of course I mean uh, the, the school kids in here. You know, and the school kids, if you would listen to me just for, for a moment as I speak to you, but I mean more than just the, the school kids, and uh, certainly not trying to patronize the students in any way, but let me include the students in that. You're not kids, we know that. You're adults, but compared to me, <laughs> and compared to some of the rest of us, we can, oh, believe me, we can include you in, in the idea of young people. And I would ask all of the young people, what are you supposed to see in the text? I mean, what is God showing you this morning as you come to his word. Part of what you're seeing is surely the destructive power of darkness. Do you see that? The fact that the devil and his temptation, what is he trying to do? The devil, we see here, the devil is trying to hurt and harm you as young people. Look at this text and see it clearly, but we're also supposed to see more because are you not struck as a young person by the, the goodness, the kindness, the love and the care of the Lord Jesus Christ? See, the rest of us in the room, we know this. We know that even though you are young, lots of you are going through fierce trouble and trial in your life just now. We know that you're not exempt from that because of your youth. We know that you're, you're facing really tough times in your youth, like really fierce temptation, pressures on you. But what you must remember is that right now, just now, Jesus stands ready to show you mercy. Jesus just now stands ready to pour out his love on you and to, to show you grace and to help you and to spiritually entirely heal you if you will only look to the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I think for the young people, especially in this text, you're supposed to see that you need to come to Jesus for healing. And when you do that, <laughs> you need to keep him in that window frame as your constant focus. And you need to do that even in your youth we see that we must be focused on Jesus' mercy. Second, more briefly, we also, in this life of discipleship, this journey of discipleship, we need to focus on Jesus' power, his power. Um, this past week, I was um, listening uh, to a short podcast, and it was a podcast uh, where a recently retired football manager, uh, Neil Warnock, he was being interviewed uh, so nothing spiritual in this podcast at, at all. Uh, now, this, this football manager uh, is renowned as being a little bit of a character. And uh, the tone of the whole podcast was very lighthearted. And he was being gently ridiculed all the way through in this interview uh, because of his repeated use of a particular phrase. So Neil Warnock is famous for ending every story that he's ever told. I think it's actually the name of the title of his autobiography. But everything he says, he ends it with this. He says, are you with me? Are you with me? And I'm sitting there listening to this podcast chuckling because I recognize that I say that too often as well and I often do that in preaching. And so you know what I'm going to say. Like Neil Warnock, I'm going to ask, are you with me? 
But really, as we go into this miracle, are you, are you with me? What, what have we seen here? It's something, again, to think about the juxtaposition. Thus far, we have seen that majesty of last week, of the transfiguration. The majesty of the mountaintop experience is immediately followed, isn't it, by the darkness of the valley. And, and we're seeing, think of Jesus. We're, we're seeing that Jesus has not just come for the transfiguration not just come for that glorious moment, but Jesus has come not just to be served. Look at this miracle. Jesus has come amongst us to serve and to heal. But we, we, we drove past a little detail, didn't we? One that I mentioned and alluded to, but one we need to stick it into reverse and go back to. And you'll see, because it's an amazing detail. If you look at verse 40 with me, please, if we could put that on the screen or, or have a look there. Does this not have you scratching your heads a little bit? Before Jesus healed this boy, this child, look what the father's done. So he has begged the disciples to cast out that demon and then, listen to the phrase, Scripture tells us they could not. The disciples couldn't cast out that demon. So Christian friends, do do you find that a curious detail? I think it's a curious detail. I mean, not only is it almost unique in the Bible, you with me on that? Very rarely will we come across a a, a miracle that goes wrong that doesn't happen. Not only is that true, but consider what we were told a few weeks ago in verse 1. If you look at chapter 9, verse 1, we've just been told that Jesus has given the disciples, all authority over, is it just demons? Spirit, it's over all authority, over all spirits and all demons. So theoretically, at least, you see, they should have been able to do this, shouldn't they? So why? Why did the disciples fail in this? Let me give you what I think the answer is here, and we'll just, we'll, we'll try and pick it apart. Why did they fail? I think the answer here is because of a lack of faith. I think that the disciples failed here because they were trusting in their own strength and they were not trusting sufficiently in God. I'll I'll, I'll read you what one writer says. And coincidentally, I think Will quoted the same writer last week in the sermon. But we're not, it's not plagiarism. It's a different quote. This is Phil Riken. So we're asking, why did the disciples fail to cast out this demon? Riken says this, and I agree. He says, there was a failure here to trust God to do what God alone can do. A failure to trust God to do what God alone can do. So does everybody see the idea that we're saying, saying it's, this, is, this is because of a lack of trust and a trust in God and God's power. Now, some of you may want to push back on that. You say, well, Andy, how can you defend that? Because Luke doesn't actually make it all that clear, you may say, that it's about a lack of faith. Well, I want to give you just two things to think about. Number one, let's look at verse 41 together. Verse 41. Do you notice that Jesus issues this rebuke 
And I think it's a rebuke that because of the context here, it's largely got the disciples in view. It's directed at the disciples. Now, what does he say? What's the rebuke about? Do you look at the language? Oh, faithless generation. The rebuke is about lacking faith. So we take that into view, but then add to that what we learn in the parallel accounts in Mark's gospel, Matthew's gospel. Again, I'll just read it to you. I think this sums up. Listen to Matthew 17. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately. And the disciples asked Jesus, why can we not cast that demon out? And Jesus said to them, it's because of your little faith. It's because of your little faith. It is fairly clear, isn't it? It seems confusing. But ultimately, why did they fail? Because they were trusting in themselves and not in God for what God alone can do. Trusting in themselves, not in God, for what only God can do. Now, please do this with me. Please just think for a moment back to the application of our first point. Would you, would you agree with me that the application of the previous point was quite narrow it was quite nuanced. Largely, it was for the younger people, the school children and so forth, in the room. Quite narrow. What I want you to see, I am desperate for you to see, is that the opposite is the case here. You and I are face to face with a principle in Scripture that applies right across the board here. Because, Christian friend, are you and I not capable of making the same, exact same mistake? as the disciples make in Luke chapter 9, in your life, in my life, in so many different areas, what's the mistake? Do we not trust in ourselves and not in God for what God alone can do in our lives? Let me give you some examples. Is it not true in our evangelism? Your evangelism, my evangelism? <laughs> can I tell you how I thought when I first became a Christian? In my early 20s, I was utterly bamboozled why more of my friends were not becoming Christians. Like a few of them became Christians, and I was just, I, I just couldn't understand it. In the pride and foolishness, the folly of youth, I was like, well, hang on, I've told them about Jesus, and my arguments were great, <laughs> and my apologetics were on point, they were sharp. Why were they not becoming Christians? Do you see, like, so, so foolish, trusting in myself and not in God for what only God can do. What about a Christian service? Do you ever ask, why do we not see more fruit? Why do we not see more glorious things from our fellowship group Bible studies? Why do we not see much more fruit from our Sunday school work or for, from our youth work or from our preaching, could part of the reason be that we are relying too much on ourselves and not enough on the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit? And then, is there not a third and last example? And here, this is an example that surely is applicable to every single Christian in this room. Because what about your battles with temptation and your battles with sin? Is that not relevant here? 
I mean, you, you know it, don't you? Can you not recognize it in your own life? As we battle temptation, very often we fall back, don't we, on relying, trusting on our own strength. Isn't that true? Like our hope sometimes is in the mechanisms that we have put in place to battle our sin. Or our hope very often can be in our own resolve. Yes, I've done that. I won't do that ever again. Stiff upper lip. But what are we seeing in this portion of Scripture? With these disciples' failure, are we not seeing that especially when it comes to the devil's devices, if we rely on our own strength, look at the disciples. We are going to come undone. We are going to come unstuck, aren't we? How we need to keep our gaze fixed on Jesus as we travel through this life, looking at Jesus but trusting in Jesus to do what only Jesus can do in our lives. So we see his mercy and we praise him for it. And we see his power. But there's a third and there is a last thing that we must be focused on out that window as we journey home. And that is Jesus' cross. Jesus' cross. So you're with me. We've seen the disciples have failed but then we've seen, oh, we've seen Jesus succeed and uh, that lovely detail where he restores, as he always seems to do, he restores the healed child back to the parent as well. We've seen that, but we're not quite done. Because I'm sure you noticed, at this point, Jesus seizes the opportunity to instruct the disciples, but to remind them about something. Did everyone see what it was? He reminds them in this moment that there is there's suffering for him looming. There's suffering for him ahead. Um, I wonder, Julia, if you could put up verse 45 or if you could look at verse 45. And again, there's a lot for us to wrestle with here, I think, but no doubt what strikes you there is the lack of understanding? Is that what grabs your attention? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? If you've been here for the sermon series, you find it amazing, don't you? Because, <laughs> do you remember, it's, it's only just a few days ago that Jesus had talked to the disciples in detail about his suffering. And yet, when he repeats it to them, what's the language here? Do you see just display this, this complete lack of understanding. Now, now just peel it apart. What, what other expressions stand out? Do you notice it was concealed from them? So this is perhaps the idea that God, in his wisdom, withholds understanding because it's not the right time for the disciples. There's that concealment. What else? Though? Look at the end. This can baffle us. It baffled me. They were afraid to ask Jesus. I'm asking you, why were they afraid to ask Jesus about the suffering? Have you got an answer for that? I don't know what it is. I mean, we can speculate. Maybe they were embarrassed. I might have been embarrassed. I just didn't understand what he's saying. Maybe they were frightened about what this suffering for Jesus is going to mean for them. But we don't know. All we know is that they just didn't get it, did they? 
And they're there, they're hearing from Jesus, and they just could not comprehend why the Messiah of God, this one, this powerful one, this merciful, they just couldn't understand why he has to suffer. Now, of course, what we could do is uh, we could linger on the beautifully privileged position that we enjoy. Again, you know, unlike the disciples who are trying to follow Jesus here and they're in this dim light of understanding. Look at you and me. Look at how privileged we are this side of the cross. We follow Jesus and God in his grace has furnished you with all detail about Christ's redemptive acts and his redemptive work. We, we could linger there and hallelujah for that truth. Instead, I want to come into land with this. I want to ask you to do something. I want you to, to try and work out why Jesus is returning so quickly to talk about his suffering. Now, let me ask you, why does he do it here? What is his purpose? In the aftermath of a miracle like this, why would he choose right there to talk about his suffering? Will you try and work that out with me? Let's look at verse 43. Let's get the scene. What were the vast crowd? Look at the second half of the verse, verse 43. What's this vast crowd doing? What word do you have in, in your copy of the Bible? I've got marveling. We've got it on the screen. Do we understand what that is? So that's not they see this miracle and they respond in faith. No, they're just, they're reveling in the an astonishment of this moment, aren't they? Like this crowd, all the disciples, everyone together, they're, they're just soaking it up. They're loving the drama of it, this occasion. That's, that's the setting. That's what's going. They're all marveling. And then look at this crucial detail. Look at it. Do you see it's And while they were marveling, Jesus speaks to his disciples about suffering. As they're all enjoying and drinking in this moment, Jesus, do you see what he's doing? Listen, here the Lord Jesus Christ is redirecting their attention, isn't he? He's saying to the disciples, you please do not get waylaid. Do not, Jesus says to his disciples, do not get distracted. No, keep your focus on the passion ahead, on the cross ahead, on the suffering ahead. Keep your focus there. And so we close, and I ask you, every one of you this morning, in your life, what is it just now that you are most focused on? Let's go back to Apollo 13 for a moment. What is in the window frame of your life receiving all of your attention? So many things, aren't there, that vie for, for our attention and, 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 and you know, things can creep in. It can be like it is with the crowd here. The things that dazzle us and bring us some excitement, we can focus on these different things. Well, I wonder, this morning in here, could it be that Jesus is doing with you and me what he does here with the disciples? Could it be that today the Lord Jesus Christ is seeking to direct your attention back to the cross, away from all of the other stuff that's going on in your life, and Jesus saying, keep your fixed focus there. Christian friend, why would that be the case? Why is that so important? 
Oh, you see, I said, I would do this. I said, I'd come back to it. But do you remember that word we looked at earlier on? That man cried out to Jesus. Do you remember that word? Remember he's trying to be heard? He cries out loudly to Jesus. you remember that word? That word is used in another place in the New Testament. You can guess what it is. It's used at Calvary. And what happened there? Because it's very different to this, isn't it? There at Calvary, it wasn't a father crying out for an only son. At Calvary, an only son cries out loudly to his father as he is forsaken and he cries out as he bears in his body on that cross all the penalty that was due to your lawlessness and your sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Friends, when you pause to think about it, isn't it so fitting that we are about to go to the table and remember our Lord's death? And why? Because it is that old rugged cross that must remain our fixed point of reference in this life. We must have it out the window at all times as you and I journey home and as we do that as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, let's bow our heads before our God and let's pray.